Welcome back to Presidents in Politics. I'm one of your hosts, Professor Caleb McGee. Join my fellow co-host, former Congressman Ross, and uh, we're tripping up at the beginning because we're talking about Miller's going to be our shortest podcast. I think we could close right now, couldn't we? He was uh, the 13th president. Goodbye. About, yes. <laughs> you know, and you, you wonder about the, the interesting thing is after Andrew Jackson, who was a two-term president, yes. you don't have another two-term president until Abraham Lincoln. That's correct. So we're going through all these presidents, mm-hmm. uh, especially during the Whig uh, era, if mm-hmm. you will, which which. Um, um, Miller Fillmore was associated with, but there's no real c- great claim to fame other than the Fugitive Slave Act, which yes. was a terrible stain, horrible, but also, I guess, prolonged the the uh, the Civil War by about ten years. I, I agree, and here's one thing I've often thought about: it's almost like uh, between World War One and World War II, those interwar years, yes, when the government had the policy of appeasement. And then appeasement, really, because we're not going to go to war, because the Great War shocked us, right? It was the war to end all wars. Right. So we don't want to go back to war. So we have this, this national policy of appeasement, basically let every other country do whatever they want. Hitler comes to power. Mussolini comes to power. The Japanese Imperial Army takes over the South Pacific because no checks and balances are there. And had we fought the war in the 30s, it probably been much less disastrous. Looking at that, I often wonder the Civil War, had the Union checked this sooner, maybe under the power of, like, Zachary Taylor, would well, have been as bloody, lived, yes, right. had it been as yeah. bloody of a war as it became, as it stretched out, because the Confederacy knew this was coming, so they're, they're amassing weapons and strategy and tactics. Had it been nipped in the bud sooner, would it have been a more uh, effective campaign by the Union and less bloody overall? Probably so. You probably might not have seen some of the states secede. But understand that when, when Zachary Taylor passes away and Miller Fillmore becomes <laughs> president, he had served as vice president and, and president of the Senate, and the, the, uh, the Compromise of 1850 was being debated which Zachary Taylor was against because it would have expanded slavery. Mm -hmm. Here is Millard Fillmore, who was, you know, a a good guy. He he was, uh, you know, a member of the House of Representatives. He was a member of the the New York legislature. He was comptroller for the state of New York. Then he becomes vice president. And now he's thrust into this situation about what do we do about the Compromise of 1850? And knowing that he would appease, again, his, his southern strongholds just by having that, he allows it to go through. But mm-hmm. what's really bad about the Fugitive Slave Act is that it now requires the enforcement of it by yes. federal marshals. Absolutely. And that's where it really goes bad. Absolutely. And had he not allowed that to go through, that would have weakened the positions of the South, mm-hmm. expanded the new territories and states that were coming in that were non-slaveholding, which would have changed the makeup in the United States Congress that probably could have prevailed statutorily against slavery and maybe have avoided a civil war. I I think this really shows the idea in history uh, of the ripple effect, right? Yes. One bad decision. I always tell my students this when when I teach on World War II. One of my uh, first TAs I had, uh, she was an old, she was a grad student. Her grandfather fought in the Japanese army during World War II. Wow. Whereas my grandfather fought in the South Pacific yeah. in the American Navy during World War II around the island of Okinawa. So our, our grandfathers are very close. And had her grandfather been successful and killed my grandfather, I wouldn't be here. The whole line would be cut off. And had my so, grandfather been successful and killed her grandfather, her whole line would have been cut off. So it's amazing how one decision in history has this ripple effect that carries on for generations. And we need to study that. Yes, because we, we make decisions too lightly. We yeah, look we at the here and the now. We never look at, at the long. The extended consequences. Yes. And yeah. I think Fillmore, for many reasons, he was doing everything he could to stay in power because he was a desperate man in the sense that he w- he'd been raised in poverty. 
That's true. He has nothing. He has no plantation to go back to, no land to go back to, no wealth, nothing to go back to. One biographer said that he would do whatever he had to do to survive. Right. And that sometimes a, is, a, is, a, is a dangerous position to have your president in. In fact, there was, as you know, there was no um, annuity for presidents after this. No, when he leaves right. office, he's poor. That's true. And uh, he actually will con- condemn this. He made the statement that the, the leader of the free world shouldn't be huddled in the grocery store looking for items or some overly dramatic statement like yeah. this as he left office. But, they're, they're, I mean, basically he leaves office as president poor. And not respected. No, not respected at all. That, that was the one By thing. either side. Exactly. And it's interesting because, you know, he comes in as really the last Whig uh, in the presidency, he, he was a Whig, but he wasn't a Whig. He, he alienated the Whigs, and then uh, th- then he doesn't get reelected, and then he starts the Know Nothing Party. <laughs> Can you imagine that? A party named Know Nothing Party, <laughs> yes. and he can't understand why he didn't get elected to president. Imagine again. that. Yes. Well, he has a history of being involved with interesting parties because his first part is the anti-Masonic party. Right. Which actually, there's there's a lot of interesting history behind the anti-Masonic party because a lot of times, if you talk to Freemasons, they'll tell you their history goes all the way back to the chief architect who, who built the the uh, Solomon's Temple, and then oh. they'll tell you that it goes back to uh, the Knights of the Templar. Uh, that's really shaky. Really, in all honesty, the first like Masonic lodge that we see is in 1710 in London. Mm. And what happens is this thing begins to take off. It's kind of a rich gentleman's association. It has nothing to do with stonecutters from, <laughs> from the Middle Ages. It takes off as this rich gentleman lodge, and then it sweeps in America. And then it finally hits its, its kind of uh, pinnacle in the Morgan affair. So there's a guy by the name of William Morgan, and he had been a Freemason, but then he starts publishing all these secret handshakes on these secrets. No kidding. So he gets arrested on trumped up charges of, of, of debt defrauding, and then he goes missing in the jail, and they never find his body. So when this happens, the conspiracy theories start oh, raging. Yes. Yes. And then in 1826, you have the anti-Masonic party. Yes. Millard Fillmore, who's a survivor, sees something in it. So he jumps on the anti-Masonic party and I actually think they win something like 20 seats in the House or something, right. believe it or not. So there's yeah. actually some success in this third party. But the whole thing's built off of conspiracy theory. Does it sound like today? Absolutely. <laughs> the conspiracy theory? And, it, you know, it's also a faction of, of what was in the Whig Party, yes. too. Which, you know, the Whig Party was was started, I guess, because of the of, of Andrew Jackson against, mm-hmm. you know, the... the the uh, King Andrew um, mm-hmm. uh, anti-Jackson movement, and then they they were more of the the they the, they the educators and the more well-to-do, but they were just regional. They didn't really stand for anything. And then of course their one glorious moment in history when they elect William Henry Harrison, who dies 41 days later, <laughs> the party just you know, lasts but for it was about a good 20 month. years. It was a good it month. It was a good yes, month. That yes. was their highlight, man. But then one you, hit wonder. You know, but but then as a result of that, the, you know, the Whig Party, you know, disseminating, you see the, the beginnings of another party coming through mm-hmm. that eventually we'll talk about when we get to Abraham Lincoln. Which raises the question as we look at American history and you look at some of these third parties, and then of course one of the most famous being the Bull Moose Party with Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, yes. Um, could there be a successful third party in today's America? We look at the idea of the radical left and, and the growing radical right, and we see the radicalness. Could there be a healthy middle party, a third party, or could there be a multi-party system in America? It depends on how you de- define success. Okay. Because if success is to be the spoiler, uh, <laughs> then yes, you can have a third party. We saw that with Ross Perot oh back my. in, uh, in 19, <laughs> uh, what was it, 1992, yes. uh, when, when Clinton was elected. And, uh, you know, you're seeing it happen in the House of Representatives 
representatives right now. Absolutely. You, you know, there's a faction within the Republican Party that keeps the Republican Party from being able to exercise their majority and lead. Mm-hmm. And so is that a success? Well, to, to that small minority, it's a success. To everybody else, it's a failure. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you have a small party, and there might be one that comes out in 2024, depending on what happens in the, you know, that, that, that is created solely for the purpose of trying to dilute the votes of the people that they should be aligning with but aren't because they're upset with them, which then puts into power the other um, the other party. But as a viable third party, as a viable third choice, I think that would take a lot yeah. to have happen. Uh, it makes you wonder if the solution would not be a multi-party system when you look at other countries like France. There's, there's multi-parties, Germany, so it actually begins to split the vote among, but there's there's some dangerous elements to that because then you may split the vote so much that you get a radical side in. So there is, there is a dangerous element to this idea of a multi-party system. Well, the, the, there is that, and there's also uh, how would it start? You, you'd have to have local parties. In Absolutely. other words, you'd have to have legislatures, legislators, like organic who, grassroots. You growth. would, and that's controlled by the legislators. Yes, and it's highly unlikely that they're going to expand the statutory law to allow for the creation of a third party. Mm. You know, I mean, they do have in the state of Florida, they do have a process by which you can create a political party. Yes, and and now you have to be a member of that party for over a year before you can run for office, and you know, so it is a capital intensive uh, project to try to start a third party in the state of Florida. So, And without having the success at a local level, it's going to be hard to have the success at a, at a national level as a new third party. Yes, that's logical. Um, but then when you think about that, you've got the Republicans and Democrats, and each party is one-third of the registered voters. Well, there already is kind of a yes. party out there. It's the non-party and the majority, of right? Yes, and the majority, the majority of Ameri- American voters. Independence. Which makes you really wonder why, as the majority voting party, why have we have not um, voted in individuals that represent us? Because why do we allow... Closed primaries. Agreed. Closed primaries. Agreed. You know, again, I think we talked about this last time, the jungle primaries and things of like that nature. <laughs> um, you know, Florida would... Florida will never change. Will yeah. other states change? Probably not. <laughs> And so, you know, it, so what's it, the solution? Well, again, I think that 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 it, it, the parties themselves and I, I and, and this is an ideal time for them to do this, have got to be able to transcend back to the middle of That's those good. that they lost. That's good. And and, and you're, you're not seeing it because the extremes have taken over the parties. Yes. And and uh, and people are just disgusted and don't want to be affiliated with either party right now. And until somebody can build back uh, the, the 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 middle side of either party. And, and, and offer those that are in the middle a better alternative and make it more competitive to win a primary as a more moderate, less extreme mm-hmm. in either party, you're not going to see um, the, 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 the middle of the NPAs, the non-party affiliates, really have a choice Agreed. In, in getting a, a, a middle-of-the-road candidate. Agreed. And I'm not saying the middle-of-the-road candidate's bad. No. I mean, they can be very effective leaders. I mean, yes. incredibly effective leaders. Yes. Fillmore is a guy who I guess is kind of middle-of-the-road in, in, in some ways. Um, he just doesn't do anything. He I remember reading I remember reading one of his biographers, and he made the statement out of this, uh, what, two-year, seven-month term that he serves as president, that his number one contribution was lowering the price of the postage stamp. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. Vote. Fillmore, yeah, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. that's literally, I, I, we were talking this before. I, I mean, I have a personal home library of over, of over 2,000 books. Do you, do you know how many are dedicated to Miller or Fillmore? Zero, right? He is, he is 
incredibly. I would bet that nobody could could even would even know that he was president of the United States. I agree. I agree. One of the most ineffective. Now, the one interesting thing he does do is his wife, Abigail, Mm -hmm. she'll start the White House Library. And she does this because when she's in uh, D.C. and she's in the White House, she is appalled that she cannot find a Bible or a dictionary in the White House. So Millard Fillmore is not very religious. He he technically is Unitarian. Right. (laughs) You know, we'll we'll leave that alone. Um, But his wife is actually Baptist and and is is a very religious woman. So she she's looking like for this Bible in the White House and then addiction. There's nothing. So they start the first White House library, which is kind of sad. I mean, all of these founding fathers were uh, incredible readers, but I guess because of their personal libraries, didn't really care about having a library at the White House. House, That's true. So more than likely, that could be why. And then Fillmore's poor, doesn't really have a, a home estate. In fact, his very first home he ever lived in, he built with his own hands. Mm. So he uh, he's an interesting. He's from he's from um, Buffalo, New York. Uh, mm-hmm. he, I think that's the only yeah. town who knows who he is. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, I, they do like a Millard Fillmore uh, Day every year. They celebrate him, and I, I love. Well, I was... but wait a second. Let's talk. <laughs> this is Buffalo. Yeah, they celebrate everything. Yes, I, 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 come on. You've, yeah. been doing, you've seen the tailgate yes. parties at the Buffalo Bills yes. game. Yeah, I was I was I was literally watching a, a documentary <laughs> on this the other day, and um, they said their two proudest accomplishments in Buffalo, New York, was Millard Fillmore, and the Buffalo wings, so chicken wings, and they said they weren't even sure what. Order that came in. So uh, I love it. in historical rankings, you barely <laughs> rank with the chicken wing. It's the president of the United States. So this uh, is the reason why we knew ahead of time uh, we were going to struggle on this one, right? Yes. And, a, and a struggle is true because it, 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 what's interesting is that after he dies in 1874, yes. well after the Civil War, yes. Grant is president. And Grant, to show you how unrespected <laughs> Millard Fillmore was, Grant barely even acknowledges his death. That's correct. I mean, here's a former president of the United States. Here's the present president of the United States who just makes a a brief comment that he has passed away. There's no celebration of life. There's no memorial service. There's, you know, they just, yeah, he served some time back then. Yeah. And and, what was interesting is despite the fact that he was uh, allowed the, the, the fugitive slave law to go through, that he stayed on the side of the union during the Civil War. Yes, he did. And he felt that, that, you know, that was the thing to do. And, but other than that, I can't really find anything that made him, you know, you talk about greatness. Yes. You talk about, you know, good men. He was my, probably a good man. Mm. But greatness not never, a great man. No. At all, on the no. least. Um, when we talk about the idea of, 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 of Congress and how we look at today's time, we say, man, it is so um, nasty and volatile and divided. It was not anywhere near as divided now as it was in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Um, coming, there, leading were, there, up were to the, fu- there were fights. They, 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 they were armed yes, on, I, the, house, on, yes, the, floor, on the, s- the floor of the House and on the floor of the y- Senate. You have the account of, of Thomas Hart Benton mm-hmm. and Henry Foote. Yeah. And Thomas Hart Benton is this, this very large guy. He's, he's very, he's very, he's from, he's from Missouri, I believe it is. And, and they're arguing over this whole idea of the Compromise of 1850. And Henry Foote's this little guy, I think he's from Mississippi or wherever he's from. And, and basically Foote calls out Benton and Benton jumps up and slings the chair and starts like coming towards him. And Foote literally pulls a pistol from his jacket pocket and levels it on, on Benton. And Benton basically is like, shoot me, make a martyr out of me. And all this is going on now. Fillmore is actually the VP at the time. So he, you he's know, presiding he, over he's the presiding. Senate. So he just quickly dismisses it and gets everyone out of the room. But you see like the mess that Congress was in. Then you have Millard Fillmore, this kind of stoic, uncharismatic leader. He, he can't even control Congress. No. Why would we expect him to be able to control the country? Yeah. 
Right. The tragic part of this is that afterwards, you know, it, it begins to, to resolve itself, but only after tragedy. Yes. And that's the tragedy of, of course, the Civil War. Yes. And then the greatness of Abraham Lincoln. Mm. And, and we come back together as a nation. Uh, you look at, you know, where we are today, the people say the polarization, the divide is the worst that it's ever been. I don't think it's that's the case, but I, I think it's on the, 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 we, the, we are continuing to divide the country. What will happen in America? Mm. Will we have a catastrophic event that will bring us back? Hopefully not. I mm. pray that we don't because we have the ability, we have the know-how, and if we understand history, we will have the motivation to yes. want to make sure we get good leaders and don't have a catastrophic event yes. that, that forces us back together. Yes, yes. Now, one of the things that Fillmore actually did do, which is just not necessarily a, a good thing by any means, um, but he dispatches uh, Commodore Matthew Perry yes, to, to open up Japan. Yeah, so yeah. you're familiar with I actually printed the, out— the, the, Yeah, the shogunate— uh, Yes. Uh, government of Japan. I actually printed out the uh, treaty letters. I feel like I'm counsel now handing wow. out Exhibit A. Wow. Um, but one thing I find interesting is how he, he veils a threat to Japan in this. And if you look on page three, he goes through this whole entire thing. This is all written Suppressive. to the Japanese emperor. And at the very end, he says this, um, I have sent Commodore Perry with a powerful squadron to pay uh -huh. a visit to your imperial's majesty. Talk about a veiled threat. Like he has come with this We are forcing him to open up trade yes. with Japan. Otherwise, we will yes. exercise our might. And he doesn't send um, peaceful ships. He sends warships, by the yeah. way. Um, and then when he comes back in six months, he sends warships with over 100 cannons. Now, remember where Japan is. Japan's just now leading the Edon period. So they have samurai. They're fighting with swords still. <laughs> and we're sending warships with 100 cannons. And then you find this, this again, this, this just like veiled threat from the right. president. He's coming with a powerful squadron. And at the end of this, you have um, Commodore Perry's letter to the emperor. And if it wasn't already bad enough with what um, Fillmore says, he intensifies this. Uh, and he makes the statement, therefore, the United States and Japan are becoming every day nearer and nearer to each other. And the present desires to live in peace and friendship with your imperial majesty, but no friendship can long exist unless Japan ceases towards Americans as her enemies. You, you, you see this idea of the Commodore being like, we're getting closer and closer and closer. I'd sure like to be friends. How about you? <laughs> it is such a veiled threat. Like the whole way through in film policy was a little different back then. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like shotgun negotiations, yeah. right? It's, it's literally walking room, laying a gun on the table and be like, let's negotiate. And what's interesting is that we could see how far back then even that trade with the with the with the, the Near East uh, and, and the Far East was was so important. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean yes. that we could only do so much here in the United That's States right. that we needed to be able to have the balance. Uh, of commerce, if you will, between us and other nations. Yes, and also uh, most of our, our, our commerce ships were still coal powered. They were steamships. Right. So actually one of the things, if you, if you read on with, with Commodore Perry's letter, he basically is like, and we know you have a lot of coal, give us some so we can, so we can stay friends. It's like the bully in the lunchroom. Like, you want to be my friend? Give me your dessert, right? It's almost that mentality that you see this mindset. And Fillmore's all behind this. Also, I found this interesting that Fillmore backs Napoleon III off of Hawaii, that France wanted to take Hawaii, and Napoleon III is basically trying to, to, to come in in a very hostile way and steal Hawaii, and Fillmore writes a letter, I couldn't find the letter, but Fillmore writes a letter to Napoleon III, and he's basically like, back off, if anyone's going to steal Hawaii, it's going to be us, and of course, of course yeah. we do, with Arm the CIA coup, yeah. <laughs> just give it a little bit and we'll steal Hawaii too, but basically it's like, you don't steal them, we're going to steal them, so uh, we, 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 we look at Fillmore as being completely ineffective, and he was, but he had some some aggressive yeah. negotiation tactics when it came to foreign relations. And I wonder how many of the, the, the common people were even concerned about trade with Japan at the time. 
I, you know, was this a guy that just wanted to have domestic tranquility and try to expand mm-hmm. his international footprint? Maybe that was it, and and because nobody was paying attention to that. Yeah, and he was he was known as being rather boring, but they also said he was very uh, handsome. Was it Queen Victoria who said that he was the most handsome man she ever met? I did not know that. Yeah, when he you know, <laughs> he meets with the queen and she's like, he's the most handsome man I've ever met, allegedly. I mean, maybe he started that rumor. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know I mean, right? President, so. That's exactly you know self promotion. Yes. Uh, so Fillmore is 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 a really interesting guy. Um, I, when he dies, actually, the New York Times runs an article, and it's not very flattering. Um, what well, actually this is a little after that because this is 1874, and and literally their 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 kind of leading caption was simply this: "He was a politician, and not a statesman." Oh wow! He was a politician, not a statesman. That's that that that's ap- that's apropos to today. Isn't it? Because we're in search of statesmen. Yes. we got a lot of politicians. We don't have any statesmen. We have very few. And, and you have to ask yourself, where do we find statesmen? Because we have to build them. I agree. We have to encourage them. We have to encourage them at a young age. We need to, we need to elevate uh, the status of a statesman as a young leader as much as we do as a young athlete, That's as good. much as we do as a young musician. And we as communities need to make sure that, that, that we recognize good young statesman leadership so That's that we good. can build it into their minds mm-hmm. to be able to do that in the future. Granted, we denigrate politicians, and some of them, most of them, might even deserve it. And mm-hmm. I understand that. That's been going on forever. But in a nation that requires individual participation, how can we survive, let alone thrive, if we're not developing, encouraging good leaders? We get what we create, and yes. we have not created good leaders. That's good. And I think what just happened in the House of Representatives last oh, week is goodness. indicative of that. Yes. Well, you look at classic, iconic statesmen like Winston Churchill. Yes. Uh, Washington, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. Good These one. men were, they were well-read, they were educated, they were fearless. They took on the idea, we talk a lot of voluntary hardships, they were disciplined. And then you look at the current status of politics, and I don't see those attributes. No, you don't. In the least. No, I, don't, I think it's, it, the, politicians can't adjust to social media. No, um, no. And, and I think that's been a, a, a terrible thing for uh, developing good leadership Agreed. because they are more concerned about their social status than they are the status and the, mm. and the welfare of this nation. And, and I think that self-interest is doing a lot of harm to us, and we need to encourage those that are willing to put, seriously willing to put the greater good above themselves as the ultimate goal for those of the leaders that we seek to Absolutely. have. Absolutely. Again, the idea, that, that platonic idea that the man who does not desire power is the only man who's actually fit to hold power. Good point. Um, Fillmore, <laughs> uh, no one desired for him to hold power. I remember no. reading one of his biographers, which there's only like three biographers that's ever written on it. I didn't I was, even know that. I was reading one biographer, and uh, he, was, he was being interviewed. That's why you're the scholar. Oh, my goodness. I don't know about that. Um, I was listening to an interview, and they asked this, this guy. He was a professor. I can't remember where he was, and he wrote a book on Fillmore, and they said, why did you write a book on Fillmore? And literally, his first response was, well, Lincoln was already taken. <laughs> <laughs> I mean— That's good. It's fair, though, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it was open. Uh, yeah, nobody else had done <laughs> it. Publisher perished, so here we yeah. go. We can do this. But he is just—no actual party would have ever nominated him to be president. I agree with he that. He was the forgotten VP. In fact, if you read his life before he becomes president, it's actually quite depressing. His wife, Abigail, does not want to live in D.C. with him, goes back to, to, to Buffalo, New York, and he lives alone in a hotel room in the Willard Hotel as vice president. 
Wow. So he's like alone in a hotel room as vice president, and Taylor doesn't really want anything to do with him, which I mean, would you just no, I, mean, I wouldn't really. And most presidents don't want anything yeah, to do with their vice he president. He never seeks yeah. any counsel from him, and if I was going to get counsel, it's not going to be from Millard Fillmore, That's right? True. So like, he's basically just hanging out alone in his hotel room, presiding over Senate where people are trying to shoot each other <laughs> until he can dismiss it and run back to his hotel room. And that's the life of Fillmore. And then I think it was like midnight, there was a knock on the door. And Taylor's yeah. dying, and you're going to be president. Wow. And the whole entire course of the nation changes. Dramatically. Yes. As we discussed last week with what if, what if Zachary Taylor did not die? It would have, I believe, it would have made the Civil War entirely different. It either would have come sooner or maybe it could have been resolved altogether. But either yeah. way, it probably would have been less drawn out and less bloody. Yeah, because we gave, yeah, Fillmore gave him an additional 10 years to, Absolutely. to get ready. And, and the Fugitive Slave Act, which created these almost militias of slave hunters that were then ready to go and train. They're almost a, a form of guerrilla warfare. Exactly. Yeah. So these guys, your, your special forces training your Confederate troops who now are ready to go fight the Union. Union. In some ways, they were more prepared for violence than the Union was oh, at I the think beginning right. of the war. Now, they right. were undermanned, undergunned, and certainly with manufacturing and things of that nature. We'll come to when we come to the time of Lincoln. But as far as the, the propensity for violence and the hardness of men, they were they were already light years ahead. And I think the Fugitive Slave Act was one of the things that led to that. Yeah, a catalyst. Fillmore, in many ways, uh, began training the Confederacy before there was even the Confederacy. Amazing. If you will. An unintended consequence. Yes, absolutely. So, Millard Fillmore, I th- what do we get? Do we get 18 minutes, 20 minutes out of this? I don't even know. It's it's a miracle if we did. I'm impressed with, <laughs> with, with your knowledge on him because I had a no, I think difficult we just, time. We, we rambled. We didn't get sports metaphors out. That's, that's true. A, that's, that's a true. good that sign. That's yeah. a, so, we're in the bottom of the ninth now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, this has been uh, Millard Fillmore, and uh, thank you for joining. And we're going to get to more interesting presidents coming up soon. Yes, yes. A couple weeks. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Good job.